Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Last Defense. These are your hosts, Hanul Na'avi and Michael Belowski. We had a very interesting situation happen with our previous podcast. Um, we had some audio technical difficulties that happened every time we seemed to, you know, talk about Chinese politics. We were speaking with um, a very special and renowned guest, um, James Corbett from The Corbett Report. You can find him at www.corbettreport.com. Uh, he's had us on our show a few times, and we've been on his podcast a few times. And um, we've had a very good time you know, getting to know him a little bit personally, as well as discuss many political issues around the world, in the Asia, and especially in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, Mike, um, what did you think about this last little quagmire that we had? Oh, yeah, it, it happens. You know, I, I listen to the Alex Jones show, and he'll have mo- a lot of his guests on on Skype. And it just breaks down. It breaks down on live radio. It happens. Um, I think it's just a part of uh, life in the media. So the, the Skype gods were, were not with us um, um, today. So you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, it seemed to me like I was. there's this little guy in a room in, somewhere in China, somewhere in Shanghai. And he's just sitting there like, hmm. This guy sounds like a dissident. Click. And then, yeah. you know, we could not seem to sustain the podcast conversation, but we still got a lot of very viable and valuable information that we recorded about Japanese politics, Japanese economics. So we'll go ahead and give that to you guys very shortly. Now, before we get into that, um, is there anything else we'd like to add before we start that podcast? Well, just that, uh, like you said, I mean, I think we owe a huge portion of our audience to James Corbett. So, James, thank you. Uh, This is the third time that you've either had us on or been on our show. So, yeah, it's a pretty pretty big deal. Likewise, man. Like I said, he's done a lot for us. Um, You know, I'm really, really thankful and appreciative of that because that's helped us to, you know, build a good rapport with people as well as, you know, just really help to fight the good fight, as I always say, and get our information out there. You know, we've connected with James. We're going to start connecting with, you know, new people as well. So, you know, and the support that we've received from him, you know, we deeply thank him and, you know, I hope to see him again in a future podcast. So without further ado, this is our interview with James Corbett, which took place on Friday uh, I think that was March, yeah, March 8th. <laughs> so Friday, March 8th, this is our interview with James Corbett. Okay, well, first of all, this is a very unique broadcast. We're each coming from a different East Asian country. Uh, I'm in South Korea, Hanul's in China, and James is in Japan. So we've got the trifecta East Asian broadcast here. And anyway, we're going to focus on Japan today as our guest is from is in Japan. So I'm going to go right ahead and ask about the new prime minister, Shinzo Abe. Now, I understand this guy, his, he has a family history in, from government. His father, uh, Shintaro Abe, was a foreign minister. But perhaps more interesting, his grandfather, uh, Nobusuke Kishi, I probably butchered that, uh, was a prime minister. And he was also accused of war crimes during the World War II. Do you know anything about that? Uh, to be honest, I don't know much about uh, Nobusuke Kishi, but uh, yes, I'm just briefly looking at his Wikipedia page here, and um, yes, he's been called Showa no Yokai, the Showa era 
ghost or monster. So absolutely some uh, shady parts of that past. And I must admit, I haven't really looked into that. Um, this is uh, Abe's grand- grandfather on his mother's side. Um, oh. On his father's side, uh, his grandfather, Ken Abe, was also a politician. So he's got politicians all over his family tree. So that should tell us something about the way that the Japanese political system has functioned in the post-World War II mm. era. Now, he was already president, like, six years ago, right? And, and this kind of baffles me because uh, usually, typically, when a president resigns, their political career is over. I can't imagine somebody like Nixon trying to come back. But he came back, and he won with a landslide, like 70%. Uh, can you explain what, what happened six years ago, and how was he able to come back? Well, again, this is really just a function of the revolving door of Japanese politics. It's something of an international laughingstock, and I think deservedly so. Um, Prime ministers here tend to last about one year, um, sometimes two years. Uh, One of the few exceptions in recent years has been uh, Junichiro Koizumi, who was uh, prime minister for five or six years and enjoyed quite widespread support and uh, managed to uh, push through a lot of reforms, not all of them positive, I think, but still did a lot uh, on the, the political agenda. But most prime ministers here tend to be extremely ineffective um, and tend to collapse quite quickly. And that was the case with Abe in his first go around as prime minister, um, where he lasted 11 months. Um, I'm sorry, he was chief cabinet secretary for 11 months and then was uh, prime minister for about one year um, from September of 2006 to September of 2007. Um, It's really just a a function of some of the ups and downs of the, the ruling LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party which is pretty much the one-party rule of Japan for the past 50 years. They've been out of power for a grand total of twice for a combined total of, I think, what, three, four years. So um, in 2008, they were voted out in um, something else of a landslide. Um, just uh, Maybe it was 2009. It must have been the summer of 2009, shortly after Obama took office. And there, the LDP's political rivals, the DPJ, got into power for a few years um, on the back of support, rallying around such promises like uh, getting the U.S. out of Okinawa and, and things like that. Um, that never materialized, and um, the, the subsequent administrations in, under the DPJ all started to fall apart quite quickly. And then, of course, Fukushima threw a, a giant monkey wrench into that works. So the the political, uh, the electorate here has just become disenchanted with the DPJ and are going back to business as usual with the LDP, which, as I say, has been in power for all but a few years of the last 50 plus years. So really, it's just a question of internal party politics in the Liberal Democrat Party. And it was Abe's turn to uh, take the helm once again. I don't think um, it's interesting. The prime ministers come and go very quickly here, but I don't think a lot sticks to them particularly, except for the ones that resign because of some sort of you know corruption scandal or whatever it may be. But uh, but a lot of them just can't kind of come and go very quickly, and there's not a lot of time for the electorate to really hate them. So that would explain why you can come back from something like that. And that's exactly what's happened with Abe. And really, this is more of a vote of confidence um, for the sort of turn to the hard right in conservative uh, in Japanese politics. I think there's some support among that, um, especially considering the rising tensions with China, etc. Um, Abe has been very much a hardliner and is also promising um, uh, monetary stimulus to try to get the Japanese economy, quote unquote, going again. So we'll see what, what transpires from this. But at any rate, that's sort of why he was put back into power. Now, I, I've heard he wants to re have like a constitutional convention or sort of readapt the constitution to allow for more 
military uh, spending or aggressiveness. Uh, I'm referring to the treaty with the U.S. after World War II. They signed an agreement not to be aggressors and et cetera. And he wants to change that. Is that correct? That is correct. The Japanese constitution was drafted up um, under the, the American administration in the post-World War II era. And Article 9 of that constitution famously pro prohibits Japan from having an offensive military. Um, they've only been allowed to have uh, defensive capabilities. So they have what's called the SDF, the, uh, the Self-Defense Force, or I can't remember what that stands for at the moment. But they, uh, they supposedly only operate in defensive um, means or to support allies in various theaters around the globe. So, for example, they had some limited... Um, support roles in Iraq and places like that, but no no offensive combat operations. And that's that's been hardwired into the Constitution for uh, for over half a century now. And is it's extremely popular, I would say, in Japan. I don't know if popular is the right word for it, but I think it's very, very much part of the Japanese mentality now that this is a peaceful nation. They do not want to go to war again. They They take pride, I think, in the fact that they are a nation that doesn't have an offensive military, at least theoretically that's that's what's supposed to be the case but in the last several years we've definitely seen a shift in the rhetoric coming from the LDP and some of the hardliners that they want to revise the constitution they want to uh, get rid of that clause and they want to start offensive military capabilities now to a certain extent this is all smokescreen because the Japanese self-defense force has I mean it, it is a military and it is capable of offensive combat um, operations on the uh, the drop of a hat it could switch over and start doing offensive military operations quite easily. It has the infrastructure for that, and it is actually extremely well-funded and, and quite a large and, and modern force. Um, it just hasn't been deployed in that way. But it's it's similar to the Japanese nuclear situation. Jap Japan is not a nuclear power, quote-unquote, but they have the capabilities to start manufacturing weapons, again, at the drop of the hat because of the nuclear um, infrastructure that they developed under the guise of the civilian nuclear energy program. And, of course, that all came into question in the wake of Fukushima. But it, one of the things it exposed is that Japan does have um, capabilities to start producing nuclear weapons. So, again, this is all something of a smokescreen and something of just trying to get rid of the formal strictures against using uh, their military offensive uh, capabilities. But it is something that is definitely on the political agenda. And although I think the vast majority of the population would be against it, I could still see that happening, if not under Abe, at least sometime in the near future. And the fact that we've been seeing this increasingly popping up in Japanese political rhetoric over the past several years gives us an indication of where this is heading. Mm -hmm. And I heard he was trying to pass a law requiring in schools children to be taught, quote, patriotism. Um, end quote, whatever that means. But um, have you heard anything about that situation? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I used to teach in the, uh, the public school system here, and it has been a point of over the past couple of decades, and I think increasingly so over the past decade, that uh, Japan has has been a nation that has had that post-war mentality for for basically the past half century, where it has uh, a, a large sense of guilt and shame has been bred into the Japanese population over what the Japanese uh, people did and what they rallied around under the imperial flag back in the Second World War. And I, I think a lot has been done to try to drum that out of the Japanese population. And I think it's been quite effective to the point where Japan is a nation where they will play, uh, for example, the national anthem at certain events, but it's not something that people 
necessarily get all teary-eyed or put their hand over their heart about. It's something that, in fact, is quite uncomfortable. Um, even the Japanese flag, to a large extent, there are people who don't necessarily salute it. And interestingly enough, in the past several years, there have been, um, uh, for example, at school ceremonies and things, they've been forced uh, in recent years to play the national anthem and, and sort of face the flag while it's playing. And there have been teachers who have been uh, fired for not refusing to stand up during the, the anthem, etc. And they took that to courts trying to argue that it was their, their right to, to not uh, salute the flag or whatever. And uh, they were unfortunately, uh, the courts upheld the, the school board's right to fire them for that issue. So this is something that's been sort of brewing for several years now. And I think it's just part of an overall attempt by the political class to try to change the, the uh, sentiments of the people. Because, uh, again, so many of the people, I think, do consider Japan now to be a past nation. They do not take pride in the imperial nature of, of Japan or what it did in the past. And, and there is that still that lingering shame and guilt. But the political class, I think, is trying to turn that around. And, uh, and they're likely to start applying more um, not just political, but perhaps even legal pressure to to make sure that uh, school boards and and other things that are under their purview go along with this agenda. Mm -hmm. And shifting to Abe's economic policy, uh, um, even in international news, it's making news that he ran largely on a platform to um, crank up the printing press, so to speak, at the Bank of Korea. He even fired the head of the Bank of Korea. Uh, Mas, uh, I'm not going to try to say the name. <laughs> he fired the head of the Bank of Korea and replaced him with another guy who was more willing to um, print money. And, and what is this money going to be for, by the way? I, I think you mean the Bank of Japan? I mean, ba Bank of Japan. I'm sorry. Right. Okay. okay. Yes. Well, uh, this is interesting. Um, since the 1990s, the Bank of Japan has been theoretically independent from the Japanese government. Um, it has theoretical independence. The board of governors, uh, the, the, for example, the governor himself is, is appointed by the prime minister, but it's supposedly this independent institution. And it has, to a certain extent, resisted calls in the past for just uh, printing yen and, uh, and uh, trying to get rid of the deflationary stagnation that Japan has been in for decades now. And what we're seeing now is Abe has, as you say, just appointed uh, Haruhiko Koda, uh, Kuroda, sorry, who was the former uh, president of the Asian Development Bank, to be the new governor to replace uh, the old uh, Shirakawa, who's now Masaki Shirakawa, is now stepping out as the old governor. Uh, Kuroda is coming in, and he has been promising to use um, basically the, the Bank of Japan printing press to start injecting yen into the Japanese economy. And um, we're starting to see that shift taking place within the Bank of Japan itself, because as I say, it's got this kind of nominal independence, and um, they have a, a member, a policy board, and the members on that policy board determine some of the, the main policy decisions that the bank will take. And in a recent meeting, um, while Shir Shirakawa was still technically governor, but on his way out, there was a call um, for an immediate start um, to an open-ended asset purchase that the Bank of Japan is planning to do. Basically, they've set aside 76 trillion yen, that's about $810 billion, to um, purchase assets directly um, by, through from the Bank of Japan. So basically injecting that money directly into the Japanese economy, which is going to have an inflationary effect. Uh, Shirakawa has resisted that to a certain extent under his administration of the bank, but um, one of the board members... Sayuri Shidai proposed moving this asset 
purchase, which has been planned for next year, moving it up, starting it immediately. Uh, that was voted down by the board generally, but this is seen as a, already that it's starting to shift. Basically, it's starting to shift away from Shirakawa and putting the brakes on this monetary spending into the Kuroda era, which will be just printing yen like there's no tomorrow, which was what, what Abe specifically has has been campaigning on, what he's been talking about. Um, this is, I mean, this is obviously huge for Japan and, and the future of the Japanese yen, but it's huge for the global economy because this has been seen as really the, the beginning or at the very least the first big volley in the currency wars that are shaping up where... Um, not only the Bank of Japan, but the Federal Reserve, the, the European Central Bank, etc., are talking more and more about stimulus as a way of basically devaluing their currencies and getting inflation going, which is good for exports. But this is, of course, the, the start of a war-type scenario. I mean, there can be military confrontation just as easily as there can be economic confrontation. And it's important for people to understand that what we're seeing right now with these currency wars and the central banks opening up the printing presses and starting to inflate their currencies away is very similar, kind of eerily similar to what we saw in the 1930s with the breakdown of international trade. A lot of people think the Great Depression was simply about uh, the stock market crash and unemployment. But it was, in fact, also the beginning of an era in the breakdown of international trade where country after country was starting to devalue their currencies to make sure that their exports could be sold more cheaply overseas. And that started currency wars and that started protectionist um, policies that were put in place in country after country to sort of to protect their, their exports. And because of that, um, you started to get the the real seeds of of international conflict i mean it became uh in the 1930s international trade started to stagnate and the world war ii sort of solved that problem quote unquote by ushering in the new financial order which was founded at Bretton woods in new hampshire in 1944 which started the u.s dollar as the world reserve currency in a formal agreement between all of the allied nations so it is unfortunately true that these types of currency wars that that are exactly like what we're starting to see develop right now are the types of things that can very easily lead to open military confrontation and it's harder and harder to see a way out of this era of quantitative easing that does not end in some sort of actual overt conflict. Mm -hmm. And speaking of economics, um, you took over for the late Bob Chapman. Uh, is that correct? His newsletter? That's right. Yes. Bob Chapman unfortunately passed away last spring and I, or late spring, early summer. And I took over um, writing the introductory editorial to the international forecaster there's still about 40 to 50 pages of content i'm only responsible for the editorial but i am writing the editorial on a weekly basis okay i actually i found this article i was looking to talk about financial derivatives which is a huge topic i i personally hate talking about it because it's I, it's like the elephant in the room regarding economics it's such a big part of it but it's so difficult to explain even though I've been studying it for like four years. Uh, this article is called The Derivatives Mess. It's by Bob Chapman. And um, he talks a lot about Japan. He says that the exposure to financial derivatives, now financial derivatives in a layperson's term, I guess would be like gambling with, um, well, for example, you hear things like credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities. When they talk about it on TV, they say complex financial instruments. But uh, he says that Japan has four times their GDP uh, exposure to um, derivatives, 
And d- d- have you um, done much reading or writing about derivatives lately? I haven't talked specifically about, uh, for example, Japan's place in that uh, in that context. Um, I think it is, to a certain extent, it's meant to be dazzling and mind-boggling for people out there. And there's all sorts of big terms thrown around mm. that are meant to distract people from what the underlying issue is. And I think the best way for people to understand derivatives and what they are and how they're functioning is exactly as you say, just to think of it as gambling. It is basically a way to place a bet on not the actual value of uh, uh, some, uh, a company or a product or, or an asset, but in it's simply gambling on whether that the, the price of a certain company or value, asset or what, what, whatever it may be will go up or down. And if you gamble correctly, if you bet it'll go down and it goes down, for example, you can make money. If you bet it'll go up and it goes up, you can make money. Um, so this is something that, that has been sort of hardwired into the international financial structure for the past couple of decades, um, especially with the opening of the floodgates with the repeal of Glass-Steagall in the United States in the 1990s, which allowed these institutional banks to become uh, to basically banks had been split from their their sort of savings and uh, and loan function to and, and their financial speculation function. And that was um broken down, that distinction was broken down with the repealing of Glass-Steagall. And basically, these banks became casinos, and they started to put a lot of their assets, a lot of their notional value is in these basically elaborate gambles that they've made that sometimes um, take very little actual uh, underlying value, millions of dollars, say, and leverage it out hundreds or even thousands of times so that these uh, deals are supposedly worth billions or even trillions of dollars. And the the problem is that if and when this system starts to melt down, it wipes out all of that notional value um, and, and puts these banks in a position that it would be literally mathematically impossible to ever repay if they were ever called to repay them, which is exactly why the Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008 was such a big deal. It's because it was potentially the beginning of a a worldwide meltdown in this financial phony derivatives market. So, um, so this is the type of thing that, that this is the entire house, what the entire house of cards is, is built on these days. And there's no way to envision this, this really melting away without it being some sort of catastrophic collapse that will take the entire world economy with it, which is why this is, I mean, you're right. This is really the underlying issue of the entire thing. I haven't examined specifically Japan's relation in this, but it is, I think, uh, something that everybody should at least be aware of to the extent that this is, um, as I say, what the House of Cards is built on. So if and when this starts to dissolve, the entire economic uh, scene will be irrevocably altered. And that's something that people have been warning about for for years now, but uh, very few have been listening. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to pass the questions on to Hanul. Hanul, what do you want to talk about today? Okay, um, yeah, I wanted to cover some of the topics related to uh, Chinese politics. Of course, we have a new administration in the Chinese Communist Party. So um, first off, I wanted to ask you, uh, James, and by the way, I wanted to say thank you for coming on the show and also, um, you know, thanks for supporting us throughout the time. And um, firstly, I wanted to ask you, with the new um, government under Xi Jinping, I wanted to see, how do you think that Chinese, uh, excuse me, Chinese-Japanese politics will um, carry out over the next 10 years? Um, what do you know about Xi Jinping so far? 
Uh, not a lot. Um, I, I, I think, honestly, I think we don't have a good sense on how he's going to uh, govern or more accurately, I guess, how his uh, administration will govern, whatever you can call that, his clique of uh, Communist Party leaders. Uh, I think there's a lot of back room, back door, closed door meeting kind of um, uh, governance that goes on in China. So it's extremely difficult to to really guess where things are going to go from here. Um, there has been in the last several years, a, a sea change in Chinese uh, political rhetoric, at the very least, where more and more citizens have become um, concerned about corruption and the way that that plays into the Chinese political scene. And I think there has been more leeway for citizens to express some of that online, for example. There has been a sort of netizen movement that has identified and shamed various local officials for their part in corruption scandals, etc., and so far, I think there has been the at least the indication that the Chinese leadership is going to allow this this movement to continue, um, if not completely unfettered. At the very least, they are now starting to pay lip service to the idea of getting rid of the, the corruption that seems to be at the heart of the Chinese political system. So we'll see if that is actually the, the tack that the Xi Jinping administration takes. Um, as I say, I think it's too early to really see what this is going to be like. But we did start getting the first glimpse into what the uh, Jinping era will look like this week or earlier this week when uh, in Beijing they had the the first uh, the National People's Congress and um, where, where there were some at the very least some interesting statements again even some Communist Party officials talking about the possibility of relaxing some of the restrictions against direct private investment in some key uh, sectors including energy and, um, and finance. So it is interesting to see whether or not that, that they'll follow through with that or if that's just empty political rhetoric. And uh, I think in the next year or two, we will probably have a much better grasp of that. And from that, we'll be able to see where things are going long term with uh, some of the other regional uh, partners and or foes such as Japan. And uh, and that's going to be, I think, one of the major major sticking points because that the Chinese-Japanese conflict is, is a way of reading um, a lot of the different conflicts that are going on between the world powers generally. Because, right. of course, Japan is just basically a U.S. proxy and is certainly just a housing environment for the U.S. military uh, and its presence in the region. So what what is taking place between Japan and China might involve the Japanese and Chinese government, but probably more directly involves a, a greater quest for Asia-Pacific dominance that's taking place right now between the U.S. and China.